Many of you know, uh, if you've been here for any time at all, that in the mornings we've been going through the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, we are continuing in 1 Timothy, uh, although this is part two of the sermon that was begun last week. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. I'd like you to put your finger there and also uh, open your, put your thumb on the book of John. John chapter 13. We're going to read both of these passages. By way of introduction, I want to remind you of Paul's opening kind of mission statement. It's found in 1 Timothy 3.14. He says that I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. All the relationships in the household of God are important. And in the end of this particular letter to Timothy, who's a pastor in Ephesus, Paul addresses uh, elders, he addresses old people and young people in the church, um, and here he addresses slaves and masters. We learned last week that there were slaves and masters worshiping in the same exact church all throughout uh, the Roman world. And this is evidenced by the fact that Paul addresses this issue in almost all of his letters. His point to those who are Christians in the church, whether they're slave or master, is that they need to do their duty to the best of their ability so that the church and its teaching would not be maligned. But there's something more that we're going to talk about today. I'm using this as kind of a springboard to talk about uh, uh, a related issue, and that's that we are seeing in all of Paul's epistles by Christ as well, as being slaves of God. There are many ways in which the relationship between God and man is described through Scripture. This is just one of them. Um, But it's an important one because it's mostly overlooked by our culture because we don't like to say the word slave. And that's unfortunate. Here's uh, John MacArthur in his book, Slave. He says, The word Christian only appears three times in the New Testament. In addition to Christian, the Bible uses a host of other terms to identify the followers of Jesus. Scripture describes us as aliens and strangers, as citizens of heaven, as lights to the world. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And I would add, with God as our Father. We are members of his body, sheep in his flock ambassadors in his service, friends around his table. We are called to compete like athletes, to fight like soldiers, to abide like branches in a vine, and even to desire his word as newborn babies long for milk. All of these descriptions, each in its own way, help us understand what it means to be a Christian. Yet the Bible uses one metaphor more frequently than any of these. It is a word picture you might not expect But it is absolutely critical for understanding what it means to follow Jesus. It is the image of a slave. Would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word? We're going to begin in 1 Timothy 6, verses 1 and 2. This is God's inspired and holy word. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, 
since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Then let's turn to John thirteen twelve. John thirteen twelve. This is Jesus. I'll actually begin reading in verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now in verse 12, When he had washed their feet and put his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know those whom I have chosen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. and Let us pray together for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Our Father in heaven, you are the giver of all wisdom. We pray that our hearts would be softened by your spirit, that our eyes would be opened, that our ears would be unstopped, that you would change us, Lord, that we would understand the words that we have spoken, that we have read, that you would be honored and glorified. If there's anything not of you in this message, Lord, we pray that you would keep it from our hearts, but all that is from you, we pray that we would embrace it and cherish it as your word. Strike a straight blow with this crooked stick, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good and Faithful Slave is the name of the the title of the sermon. We're going to talk about three things. The honor of slavery, being a slave to Christ. We're going to talk about how we became slaves to Christ. And finally, what his commands are to we who are his slaves. Now, I do need to make a, a note before we begin that it... Obviously, as Americans, we've been conditioned to think of slavery as somehow related to ethnicity. And this is not so in the Bible. In the Bible, anyone could be a slave. There's no ethnicity implied at all. So nothing of what I'm going to say has anything to do with ethnicity. I'm just highlighting for you the plain fact that we will see today in Scripture that all of us who have faith in Christ are slaves of Christ. All over the Bible, his people are referred to as slaves. In its language, it's this language that uh, has been so much overlooked, I believe, in our culture for obvious reasons, which is why it's probably not as evident in your modern translations of the Bible. I love all of the modern translations. I do. Um, They all bring something wonderful um, to our Christian minds. But one thing that's almost... Uh, consistent throughout all of the modern translations is their fear of translating the Greek word doulos, which simply means slave. The Bible uses the word often. 
It's an unambiguous word, despite what you might see in the beginning of your Bible where they try to explain why they don't translate it slave. It simply means slave, plain and simple. Slavery in the ancient Near East and in Roman cultures was largely unchanged throughout thousands of years. It implied the ownership of one person by another. They had no rights in Roman culture when this particular book was written. And there was no ambiguity at all to what Jesus and the apostles are doing when they use this language and when they make references to slavery. This is why it's so terrible, I believe, not to translate the simple word in the most accurate way possible. No matter how good intentions are of translators, when the church doesn't understand the original text, the church loses. So today I just want to hopefully open your eyes to something you may not have considered. Just how often Christ and the apostles use the slave metaphor. I hope it's life-changing. I hope it's not just some words from a pulpit. If it is, you can tune me out. Uh, But this, like everything that I say from the pulpit, I I hope and pray, changes your life and your perspective. The Holman Christian Standard Bible is very consistent. It's one of the only modern translations that at least translates that word correctly, I believe. So that's the, if you notice some of the words being slightly different in what I read, that's because I'm using that version this week. Before we start, I also just want to keep, keep you focused on the fact that Christ, as we saw in the New Testament reading in John, Christ is our example of what it looks like to be a slave. Philippians 2, Paul says, Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a slave and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul is describing Jesus leaving the glory of heaven and coming to earth in the form of a slave, he says, because he's being obedient to the commands, to the will of his father. Christ is our example when we think of this and apply it to our own lives. But let's start just by looking at the honor of our service as Christ's slaves. This is the first point. Saints throughout the scripture seem honored to call themselves slaves of God. It's not something that they run from. It's not something that's kind of hidden. It's not something that they're embarrassed about. They see it as a great honor and a privilege to be part of their master's house. You remember last week we learned that the condition of a slave depended exclusively on the character and will of the master. If you had a master who was of good character, who was a good man or woman, and if he had a high position in society, then you also received great honor as serving as his slaves. Remember, Caesar's slaves, his household slaves, would receive great honor when they went out into Rome. Why? Because they were so close to the master. They knew the master's will. This is partly why we see it as such a great honor and privilege to serve in our master's house because he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Certainly he's our father. And I believe that's the most important metaphor you could grasp as a Christian is that you are children 
of a father. But looking at that same diamond from a different perspective, this slave and master metaphor really sheds light on some powerful, powerful truths. And that's what we're going to focus on. We have a good and kind and loving and gentle, powerful master. He's the king. And it's our honor. It's our great honor to serve him because we can trust him. The apostles and the New Testament writers agreed. I'm just going to quickly run through some scriptures. You're not going to be able to turn to all of these. But just listen to all these New Testament saints who called themselves God's slaves. Beginning with Simeon, who is holding his master in his arms, the baby, Jesus. Simeon's holding him in his arms in Luke 2.29. Simeon took him up in his arms and praised God and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your slave in peace as you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Listen to Paul, most frequently refers to himself as the slave. Romans 1.1, Galatians 1.10, Philippians 1.1, Titus 1.1, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Paul, a slave of God. How about James? James 1.1. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the way that apostles identified themselves with God. The very first thing in their letters that they say, I'm a slave of God. Peter, 2 Peter 1.1. Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. John, Revelation 1.1. These things were made known by sending his angel to his slave, John. This is John writing. Jude. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Jude, by the way, was a half-brother of Jesus. His mother was Mary, but he wouldn't call himself a brother of Jesus. He called himself a slave of Jesus, but a brother of James. Fascinating. How many times in your life have you referred to yourself as a slave of Jesus? Probably, if you're like me, zero. But this was the language of the New Testament church. It's been lost on us. Listen to spiritual leaders, 2 Timothy 2.24, talking about Paul instructing Timothy on how pastors and elders should act. The Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, and patiently enduring evil. Revelation 10.7, we see spiritual leaders as well. Referred to as slaves, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his slaves, the prophets. Revelation 15.3, they sang the song of Moses, the slave of God, and the song of the Lamb. Famously, you probably remember when John, in the vision and the revelation, the book of Revelations, falls down to worship the angel. Here's what the angel says. Do not do that. I'm a fellow slave with you, your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Even angels view themselves as slaves of God. But certainly believers everywhere should also do the same. In the very first Christian sermon that was ever preached by Peter after the day of Pentecost, in Acts 2.18, he references Joel. And he says these words, I will even pour out my spirit on my male and female slaves in those days, and they will prophesy. He's referring to us. 
In Acts 4, listen to how the church prays when they're under persecution. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your slaves may speak your message with complete boldness. This was the prayer of the church. It was language of the church that is not language of the church today. I'm not saying that necessarily it should be, but I think we lose something by overlooking these truths. Just a few more. 1 Peter 2.16 Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as slaves of God. And then all through the book of Revelation, this seems to be the favorite reference point for both John, angels, and Jesus referring to the church. Revelation 1.1 The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his slaves the thing that must soon take place. Revelation 2.20, Jesus talking to one of the churches, This I have against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my slaves to practice sexual immorality. This is Jesus calling his church his slaves. Revelation 7.3, Revelation 11.18, Revelation 19.2, Revelation 19.5, Over and over, the church and individual Christians are referred to as slaves of Christ. This is the last chapter of Revelation of the Bible, 22.6. Listen to this. He said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent an angel to show his slaves what must soon take place. So hopefully, by going through these particular verses, it, it at least begins to weigh on you just a little bit just how little you have thought about yourself as a slave of Christ, when really you should have, from the very first moment you began reading the New Testament, when you were a child. That should have begun, begun becoming evident over and over and over again, because it's so frequently said. And it's a great honor to be a slave of our King. We live to do His will. And I know right now some of you are probably thinking, what's the big deal? Richard, seriously, come on, get over this thing. You're making a mountain out of a molehill. Is it really that important? I mean, seriously, get over it. Certainly the translators are doing their best. They're trying to make a cultural decision on this translated word because they know the church is vast and it includes many people who are descendants from slaves. And it's been such a difficult thing for our country, etc., etc. Just step back a little bit and as a former military person, I I have to think of things strategically. That's just the way my brain is wired. Why do you think Satan would want an entire generation or two of culture to never think of themselves as slaves of God? Why? What would he gain by deceiving a church about such a basic principle? What is there to be gained from Satan's perspective? Well, I think we see it. You have an entire generation of Christians who think that their service to God is more like a servant. I'm going to work for him on my own terms. If I don't like it, I'll reduce my hours. My pay might not be good enough. Um, And really, I might just leave the service of this particular employer. You basically get your, your Burger King salvation your way. And of course, this is the status of many in church today. They would never consider themselves to be subject to a master 
who owns you. And his commands actually being upon you. No, that's it's much too hard. It has nothing to do with my choice to serve Jesus. So you begin to see maybe what would have happened if we had all been reading the scriptures this way our whole lives. We would know, and this is the second point, that our master has purchased us. He's paid for us. He owns us. All men are slaves to sin and self and Satan. All men. Or they're slaves to righteousness and Jesus Christ. Everyone's in one of those two categories. Everyone's a slave to something. Everybody. Read Romans 6.6 6 and Romans 6.19. Almost all of Romans 6 makes that point. All men either lead self-centered lives or Christ-centered lives. Everyone is a slave to something. Before Christ, I believe, for those who are slaves to self and Satan and sin, there's an illusion of freedom, isn't there? Sin is fun, often, but it's destructive, always. Your selfish, indulgent nature seems to like living in sin, and it knows no limit. Like Titus 3.3 says, you become slaves to various passions and pleasures, and magnified by our culture's new obsession with self, And self-fulfillment, we realize that these things are not passing fads. It's not like a pair of shoes that you can take off. I'll take off this this sinful thing and, and put it back on again. This is who we are as people before knowing Christ. That's why the apostles called us slaves of sin. We're we're in slavery to sin. Peter said, whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And even Jesus said, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So Satan's strategy, of course, is to hide the nature of what service to God looks like. Now it's filled with people who are actually slaves to various passions and pleasures and sin who think they're Christians, but they've never, ever thought of God as their master, of obedience as required, of repentance as real. It's just a very shallow and mushy and have it my own way kind of Christianity. But you see, Christ changes everything. When Christ comes into your heart, when the Holy Spirit regenerates you, it's all different. When that happens, you become slaves of righteousness. Your want to changes. Now you want to run from sin. Now you want to be righteous. In your actions, your thoughts, words, and deeds are pushed to Christ. Romans 6.22, Paul says, But now you have been set free from sin and have become a slave of God. And the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. 2 Corinthians 5.17, one of the first scriptures our family memorized. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Praise God. That's salvation. In Christ, we see that the freedom of self was actually complete slavery. When we were in sin, it was slavery. Whereas slavery to Christ is a liberating freedom because we no longer are enslaved by sin and our selfish, selfish appetites, but now we're slaves to righteousness in Christ. David Wells writes, We have been freed from in order that we might be freed to, and that means being freed for. 
We have been freed from ourselves to Christ for his service, and it is a freedom from our past life and for a new life. So, of course, there's two aspects to this metaphor. I'm going to talk to them quickly. Number one, in the slave and master metaphor, you see, number one, that you have a master, and he, it's, it's Jesus, it's God. He is your Lord and your master. And secondly, you see that you are his purchased property. Master is, there are two words in, in the Greek that mean master. Uh, despotes means master, as in Jude 1.1, both despotes and curios, both the master words are used. Jude, a slave of Christ, verse 4, who is our only master and Lord, our only despotes and curios. Curios also means master. It's often translated Lord. Lord and master are synonyms, basically. So whenever you see the word Lord, and it's used often about 700 or 800 times in the New Testament, when you see the word Lord, you need to think of master-slave. That's what should be coming through your head. John MacArthur writes, Kyrios, which is Lord, and doulos, which is slave, are two sides of the same relationship. To be a doulos was to have a master, and to be a Kyrios, or a Lord, by definition, was to own slaves. Thus, when we confess Jesus as Lord, it is simultaneously to confess him as master over ourselves and his slaves. You realize you have been purchased. Slave language is used throughout the discussion of salvation by Paul himself. 1 Corinthians 6.20, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. And our master has been given all authority Interestingly, Jesus speaks as a master right before he goes up into the heavens. After his resurrection, he says, All authority under heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, I am your master. I have all authority. And then he begins giving commands. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Now, again, this is one of the metaphors that we use to see our relationship to God, but it's one that's been so overlooked for so long that it's lost on our culture. But Jesus and the apostles knew exactly what they were communicating. Jesus is our loving Lord and Master. He possesses all authority to command. He's purchased his own. And we are, should be, his willing slaves, ready to do whatever he wants. How many harmful, self-centered doctrines could have been avoided by just understanding the simple truth that he is our Lord and our Master? A self-centered view of salvation we've already talked about that says, I choose God whenever I want. You know, Jesus, he's just knocking at the door of my heart. He's a gentleman. He's just waiting. What Lord goes to a Master's door and knocks? Rather, we see Jesus saying, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you to go and bear fruit. That's one of the biggest problems I see with the servant language that's used in most translations. Yes, it is more digestible for our souls because we don't like to say slave or think of slavery. But servants choose their own employers. Servants don't call their employers master. So whenever you're reading and you see servant next to master... Like, red flags should go up. That's, it doesn't even make sense. He's talking of slaves. 
There can be no question that we've missed something critical in our understanding of the Christian life. What the slave-master relationship does, I believe, is it strips our illusions of self-sufficiency, remembering that he has purchased us. He's brought us into his household by his blood, and now he's our Savior, our Lord, our Master, our friend. Let's look at the third point quickly. Uh, the, the Master, he commands you. What does he command? I'm going to just run through seven quick bullets. Number one, his slaves are commanded to go and be salt and light in a dying world. Matthew 28, 18, we've already read it. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Go into the world. Be salt and light. Secondly, his slaves are commanded to serve each other as the Lord and Master has served us. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. Do you realize when he took off his outer garments and put on the towel? He's doing what slaves did. He's acting literally like a slave. That's why Peter is like, don't touch my feet. Don't. I don't want you to do this. And after Jesus had acted as a slave for his disciples, he said, you must go and do the same thing. He did the work of a slave, exampling for us how we should treat each other. And he taught this way throughout his Gospels. Matthew twenty twenty six: Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He commands us to serve each other as slaves. Thirdly, his slaves are commanded to face the scorn of the world, just as he did. Matthew chapter 10, verse 24. A student is not above his teacher or a slave above his master. He's saying, you're the slave, I'm the master, you're not above me. It is enough for the disciple to become like the teacher and the slave like the master. If they called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? As his household slaves, we also will be persecuted as Jesus was. We must follow him even to the hardest places in life. We must deny ourselves and take up our crosses and follow him to death. And if you're suffering now, he knows you're suffering He experienced great suffering. Your tears are cherished by him. They're precious. We read that they're placed in a bottle. Meaning they're very precious to him. He knows your suffering. He knows he's sending you out to suffer. And yet he still calls us to do so. We will do as our master did. Number four. His slaves are commanded to forgive. As he forgave. The parable of the unforgiving slave in Matthew 18. This is where the kingdom of heaven is compared to a king who wants to settle accounts with his slaves. And he finds one who owns 10,000 talents, which is an amazing amount, a billion dollars. And then he finds that one is forgiven. And then he goes out to find another slave who owed him just a few thousand dollars. And he throws him in jail. And he says, so my heavenly father will do to you um, when the evil slave was thrown into hell. So my heavenly Father will do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from the heart. His slaves must forgive. We're commanded to forgive. Fifthly, his slaves are commanded to be diligent and ready. We should be ready for the master's return. Luke 12, 35. Be ready for service and have your lamps lit. 
You must be like a people waiting for their master to return from their wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can open the door for him at once. The slaves the master finds ready and alert when he comes will be blessed. We must be ready and diligent in our lives here on this earth. Sixth, his slaves are commanded to be grateful. To be grateful. This one is amazing. In Luke 17, he says that you have a slave who goes out into the field, and when he comes back from the field, do you tell him to sit down and make dinner for him? No, you tell him to make your supper and bring it to you and serve you. And he says, does the master thank the slave because he did what he was commanded? In the same way, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, we are worthless slaves. We've only done our duty. The point is we must do everything that the master has commanded us. He's paid for us. And only in light of his service, service to our master, does anything we do matter. We must do as he did. So slaves are honored in the Bible as slaves of Christ. We should also, as slaves of Christ, embrace that title as a title of honor. We need to remember that he's purchased us. He's paid for us with his blood. It was not cheap to bring us into the household of God. And then finally, he commands you. He commands you to act the way he did. Let's conclude with this. Well done, good and faithful slave. I know many of you grew up like me thinking, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what runs through your brain when you hear that parable. It's not what the word says. Well done, good and faithful slave. This is the ultimate end of every slave, the goal of every slave's life, whether a real slave in the time of Rome or today, spiritual slaves to God. We want to hear those words from our master. Well done, good and faithful slave. It comes from the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. One slave wasted his talent, and he was thrown into outer darkness. And the ones who did well were, were told, well done, good and faithful slave. Put you over a few things. Now I'll put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. How? How do we hear those words? We fix our eyes on Jesus. He's our good and loving master, but he's also our brother. He's our friend. He's our savior. He's our king. And yet he calls us to do what he did. In John 15, he says, this is my, my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. He's giving commands as a master. Greater love has no one than this. And he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask my father in his name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. He's not saying that we should never refer to ourselves as his slaves when he says, I no longer call you slaves, but I call you friends. Because we know later, even in the book of Revelation, he calls the church and all saints in the church his slaves. What he's saying is, I don't call you only slaves. Now I call you friends. You're close to me. You can come to me. You can talk to me. And if you really think about this passage, what friend, what kind of friendship is it going to be if you say, hey, would you please be my friend? 
And stand by, I'm about to give you a bunch of commands and you have to do them. That's what he says in this passage. These things I command you. This is my commandment. So he's using slave language. But he's also telling us that we're also his friends. And he draws us close to himself. There are some of you in this room who are already Christians. And you've just never thought about this particular language. And for you, this should be a great encouragement. And I hope it really does change how you view your work on this earth for Christ. These aren't recommendations for us. These are commands from our loving master. He wants us to serve him well. We focus our eyes on Jesus Christ. That's the key to all of our service. But many of you have realized this morning that although I probably thought I was a believer, I was a Christian at some time in my life, I've never actually thought of Jesus as a master, as a Lord, someone who commands my life. And for you, this is more than just a wake-up call. This is your call from your master to a right relationship with him. You see, in submitting and repenting to Jesus Christ, you actually find freedom for the first time. And listen to the the heavy yoke of slavery that he puts upon you. It's not heavy at all. And he says such things in Matthew 11. He says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Freedom is found in slavery to Jesus Christ. Come to him today. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word and for your Holy Spirit that illumines your word to our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in all things, that we would serve you, that we would serve you willingly, that we would serve you with joy, that we would understand the great price that was paid to bring us into your household, that we would also consider that not only are we your sons and your daughters, not only are we co-heirs with Christ, but we're also your purchased property. Let us serve you well. Open our eyes. Change our hearts. Revive our spirits, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.